hope you have a Bible nearby and, and you can follow along with us as we <clears throat> read a little bit about our Lord and get to know a little bit more about him. In John chapter 4, if you want to go to one of the Gospels and you want to learn about Jesus, there's no more, there's no better place to go than the book of John. And that's where our message will be taken this morning. In my studies through the book of John, oh, in the last year or two, I noticed something that I, I hadn't caught before. And I don't think it's a, an accident in how uh, these things uh, come together and where they come together. But whether or not it was intended or not, we can certainly take note of the fact that Jesus connected with both the very highest and the very lowest of society. In John chapter 3, when no doubt Jesus was exhausted from another very busy day, we find him discussing the kingdom with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a wealthy, powerful, prestigious, intelligent, educated, and morally and religiously respected man among the highest in the land, this man Nicodemus was. Yet, Jesus did not write him off. He spoke with him about the beauties of God's love and the coming kingdom. And then we come to chapter 4, and we meet a character who was everything that Nicodemus was not. Let's notice some of the comparisons between the two, some of the contrasts. Nicodemus was a man, and the woman from Samaritan, of course, was a woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a person of influence. She was a nobody. He worshipped at the right place. She worshipped in the wrong place. He belonged to the religious right of the day. She was a religious outcast. He was morally pure. And she was spiritually destitute. They were both miles away from where they needed to be, but they were in totally different directions. Yet Jesus, in his love and concern for both of them, we see is equally great. To Jesus, they were both sheep without a shepherd. And oh, he longed to take both of them into his fold. It's particularly fascinating to me how naturally he connected with a Samaritan woman. Let's see how from the story uh, that John relays to us, how this story unfolds. And the great love of Jesus, a love that we should be striving to emulate in our lives. In this little story, we find that Jesus, the model soul winner, shows the rest of us in reaching out to the lost that barriers can be overcome. We see this with, with nearly everyone we meet. There are some kinds of barriers between us and between them as we try to lead them to Jesus. We can overcome those barriers just like Jesus did. Jesus overcame racial barriers. He overcame gender barriers. He overcame national barriers, religious barriers, moral barriers, and physical barriers. The physical barrier in this story is that he had to have been, after this lengthy journey, exhausted. He overcame these barriers to win this woman's heart and soul. How did he do it? Well, with all their differences, he found common ground. He found that they both needed something. They both needed water. They were both thirsty. We find that Paul uses this same idea, approach, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23. 
I am become all things to all men that I might save some. Well, Jesus deplored the state of the Samaritan woman. She was not where she should be. He knew that. And he wanted to change that. But it didn't come right off the bat and just start slapping her around like sometimes Christians do. Not thinking about what if I was where she is? Or what if I was where he is? We fail to do that sometimes. Jesus wasn't like that. He thought things through. He used common sense. The Bible teaches in, in uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Every single word in the Bible is beneficial. The Holy Spirit never wastes words. Yet at first glance, verse 3 and 4, as we read in our text, seem to be of no moment, seem to hold no great significance, but beneath the surface, their significance swells. Let's read 1 John, uh, John 4, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Verse 3 and 4, what possible significance could these two verses have? He's going to make the trip to Galilee, but what, of what importance is it that he passes through Sychar and Samaria on his way to Galilee? Well, the Jews despised, hated, really, the Samaritans that, that lived in this region right here. And when they would ordinarily make a, a trip from Judah to Galilee, instead of going the shortest route, they would go across the Jordan River, go all the way around, and then come into Galilee. Why? They hated them. They despised them so much. They didn't want to be around them. They didn't want to see them. And they didn't want to be defiled by passing through their country, their region. The Bible says he needed to go through Samaria. Why? The 70-mile journey to Galilee through Samaria took three days on foot. But most Jews would take the long, hot desert road from Jerusalem to Jericho up the Jordan Valley, which took seven days, an extra four days they would go because of their religious and racial disdain for the Samaritans. This area, Samaria, today is referred to, uh, it was Menachem Begin, I believe, who first began to refer to it as the West Bank. They stayed away from that area. Another reason why people may not have always traveled that way was because they were concerned for their personal safety. This was a, a dangerous route. We find also in verse 9, as John narrates the story, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Why was that? Let me give you the fast facts on the Samaria, situation in Samaria and with the Samaritans. I think this is important. I think it's interesting as well as valuable for us to know this. The children of Israel, well, that's the northern ten tribes, committed idolatry and worshipped the gods of other nations. So God, as a punishment to them, just like he'd warned them, sent the Assyrians, which came from uh, the area where modern-day Iraq, Iran, and, Assyria are and Syria are located. He sent these people to take the Israelites of Samaria captive. We read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17. This is about 
750 years before Jesus met this woman in Samaria. Well, the Assyrians settled into this region. And after the captivity, and these people, the Israelites, were allowed to go back, they returned to Samaria, and now they settled in and intermingled and intermarried with the Samarian, the Samaritans, or with the Assyrians, and they gained the name of being the Samaritans. And then, though, as time uh, rolled on, they decided that they wanted to help those of Judah build the temple in Jerusalem. Well, this offer was flatly refused. And as a result of that, they became bitter enemies. And they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which was right here, was right at the same place. In fact, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he's just right at the foot of this mountain where these people for all so long had worshipped and worshipped in error because God said that was not where you were to worship. Well, when their temple on the mountain was destroyed, they still directed their worship to Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans were guilty of open religious apostasy. Now they pretended, like many people today do in Christianity, well, it just doesn't really matter that much where you worship as long as you worship. But they were wrong in evaluating their situation that way. They pretended that those in Jerusalem, now they are the ones who had digressed. And in doing so, they rejected all of the Old Testament books except the first five books. They said those other books, those aren't really God's word. That was part of the arrogance of the, the tribes that were located in Samaritan, Samaria. Now, lest you get the wrong impression, the, the southern tribes were not as pure as the driven snow either. They were also disobedient and rebellious. It seems like they were just a, a few steps behind the Samaritans in their wickedness and in their idolatry. But at least they did worship at the right place. Over time, the Samaritans were further alienated from the Jews as they intermingled and as they intermarried with the Assyrians. We don't usually give the historical background as we look at this story, but I think it helps us in understanding why the Jews and the Samaritans were such bitter enemies and why it was such a big deal that Jesus would go through this region. I think this also helps us to understand what a slam it was when the Jews said of Jesus in John 8, 48, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That was a racial slur. Had a, had a, had a horrible um, intention behind it in what they were trying to say about Jesus. Worse than any of the ones that you might hear today. So why did Jesus need to go this shorter, direct, this shorter uh, passage through Samaria? Maybe it was partially because of the journey. Jesus didn't have time to waste that four days. Why waste the four days by going around? Was it because he did not share the general Jewish hatred for the Samaritans? Possibly. He certainly deals with that head on in the story of the Good Samaritan. But I'm convinced the main reason that he wanted to spend those extra days, save those extra days by going the shorter route through Samaria was because he wanted to begin something that wouldn't take, really take place till Acts 8, some 15 or so years later. He wanted to begin to turn Samaria upside down. 
And he wanted to start with this immoral woman who carried around a chip on her shoulder. Let's read verse 5 and 6. So we came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Again now, Sychar was right on a line about halfway between Jerusalem and Galilee. Jesus had been traveling about a day and a half now. So it was probably noontime, and he was worn out. He was wiped out. He was exhausted. And so he stopped to rest at Jacob's well. Now, Jacob's well was, and still is, quite a historical place. At this time, when Jesus stopped there, it had been in existence for 1,800 years. It's still in existence. In fact, you can still visit this same spot now, which is 2,000 years later, almost 4,000 years after this well was dug. J.W. McGarvey, after visiting the well 100 years ago, wrote, Jacob's well is, listen, about 100 feet from Mount Gerizim, which rises high above it to the west. The well is a perfect cylinder, seven and a half feet in diameter, walled with stones of good size, smoothly dressed and nicely fitted together, an excellent piece of masonry. He says in 1839, it was found to be 75 feet deep, the well, but with only 10 to 12 feet of water. All visitors of, more, of a more recent date have found it dry and gradually filling up from the habit of throwing stones into it to hear the reverberation when they strike the bottom. I want to just stop here and make a point. Jesus here, I believe, was valuing good works. This well had been here for 1,800 years. For 1,800 years, and now he, he stops and he's resting at the well and, and satisfying his great thirst at the well. You know, there's really no telling how many people may benefit from the good works that you do. Certainly the servants of Jacob that dug that well 1,800 years before Jesus ended up there had no idea that the Messiah someday would come and stop at that well and quench their thirst right there. The Messiah himself, the Son of God. And you remember that your random acts of kindness, your words of encouragement, your good works may bless others that you may never even meet. We take a lot for granted. It's probably safe to assume that the Samaritan woman here in the story is also thirsty. Consider this. She had to walk out to this well with a pot, a heavy pot. And she had to carry, at this time, a 70-foot-long rope just to get a little bit of water. No doubt, this would be part of what allows her to covet the living water that Jesus is going to speak of in just a little while. Notice also that Jesus needed rest. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 through 15, the Bible teaches that the man who does not work should not eat. And that other Christians should not even associate with him. 
In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, Paul says that this kind of man is worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. And while slothfulness and laziness is a serious sin, good and godly men and women have put themselves in a premature grave because they did not give their body, their temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit rather, rest. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 teaches that. So Jesus stops here to rest and he stops here to satisfy his thirst. Verse 7 through 9. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus is resting at the well while his disciples have gone to town for food. Jesus asked her for a drink of water. Notice here that Jesus spoke first. Jesus initiated this conversation. Sometimes we think that, well, as long as we just live a Christian, Christian life, that that's all we have to do. No, there are times when we need to initiate conversations. We don't wait for somebody else to talk to us. We initiate the contact. Jesus did teach in the synagogue, and his public teaching was important. But Jesus was more than just a Sabbath morning teacher. Jesus, just like Paul and the other apostles and preachers and elders and so on, they taught publicly. And from house to house, the church does not glorify God by adding to the New Testament pattern by embracing women preachers. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35. If you believe the Bible, you believe what I'm saying. It's a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Nor does the church honor God by neglecting to teach from house to house. We who are teachers and we who are preachers will be judged more strictly, James 3 verse 1 says. And so... While in the United States, the days of baptizing dozens during a gospel meeting have apparently passed more than any time, more than any generation in these United States, we must teach the lost as well as the faithful publicly and privately. Jesus modeled that. He did it right here. He took the time. I'm going to talk to this one woman. Yes, he talked to the multitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, but he zeroed in from time to time on one particular individual and he initiated the conversation and he did that first of all by establishing a relationship a friendship and let's remember that when we're working to reach out and to save the lost well a Samaritan woman was stunned she was shocked imagine that you were there imagine you were there watching imagine you were there listening somehow hidden behind some bush somewhere to experience this you could see the facial expressions there. If Jesus' clothing didn't give it away, his accent did. She knew that this man was a Jew. Watch as the story develops to see how her knowledge of and respect for Jesus grows. We find in verse 7, she speaks of him in not real positive way about him being a Jew. By verse 11, she's saying, sir, when she speaks of him, by verse 19, she speaks of him as a prophet. And then finally, in verse 29, she's talking to him as the Christ, the Messiah. But at first, she must have been thinking, what a strange man. And she says, in effect, 
Who do you think you are? And what do you think you're doing? I think another element of Jesus' wisdom here is seen in how well he was able to listen and how much he listened to this woman. If Jesus was going to limit this conversation proportionally to who was right and to who knew what they were talking about, he wouldn't have let this woman get an ed a word in edgewise. He'd just say, no, shush, you stop and you listen to me. And even though Jesus did initiate the conversation, we see Jesus listening, swift to hear. James 1 verse 19 says, slow to speak, swift to hear. We see that. It's interesting to me. I took the time to, to go down and, and break down the conversation from verse 7 through verse 20. And did you know that they both spoke exactly 114 words? A completely balanced conversation. He was going to turn the conversation, but he allowed her to talk. He allowed her to express herself. She says, though, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She was really scolding him, I believe, for violating the conventional cultural etiquette. You shouldn't be doing this, mister. I know who you are. You need to know who you are. But Jesus wasn't deterred. So, sometimes we give up too easily. Jesus wasn't like that. He wasn't deterred by the awkwardness, by what was perhaps an insult or a brush off. He loved the Samaritans just like he loved the Jews. He loved the women just like he loved the men. He loved the harlots just like he loved the holy ones. People who don't understand the Bible or the times sometimes slander the New Testament. They slander Jesus and Paul saying that all or maybe from time to time one of them were against women. That's not the case. Jesus elevated the woman and he, and he spoke with and treated women better, much better than the men of that day. I think it's important for us to know that as we hear some of the things that we hear out in the world. Jesus honored and valued the six Marys. Their names are preserved as being the ones that were there right to the end when some of the men couldn't be counted on. Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Cleopas, Mary and Martha, Joanna, Susanna, Salome, Dorcas. Jesus highly esteemed these godly women without putting them in the pulpit like some think they have to do or without elevating them to a, a place of church leadership, the eldership. We can still do what Jesus did graciously today and honor godly women just like Jesus did without violating the New Testament teaching. We see the same in the Apostle Paul that we saw in Jesus. He singles out Phoebe in Romans 16, not saying that she's some kind of a, a church official, but he elevates her as a godly woman. He singles her out, just like he does Priscilla and Tryphena and Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus' mother, Lois, Eunice. And he did this, and Jesus did this in a day when Jewish men often lived in harmony with the rabbis who taught that one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men. It was forbidden to give a woman any greeting. And here Jesus is talking not just to a woman, but to a Samaritan woman. 
In fact, some of the synagogues back in that day segregated the women. They had to sit behind a veil. Some rabbis thought and taught that women should not even hear the law. Women were treated a little better than a slave, but not Jesus and not the Apostle Paul and not the New Testament. In meekness and humility, Jesus continually condescended. From the throne room of heaven to a manger in Bethlehem, from the presence of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the angels to the lepers, hypocrites, and the harlots. Oh, what amazing Savior we have. He can condescend it down to me and to you. Sometimes we think, well, we've got ourselves cleaned up. We're United States. We're Americans, and we know a lot, and we've seen a lot, and we've done a lot, and we've got a lot. We feel pretty good about ourselves, but we're just sinners. Those of us who have obeyed the gospel, we're just sinners who've been saved by the grace of God because we've obeyed our Lord. He condescends to me. Oh, to be more like him. To not think that I'm better than any man or any other woman on the earth. To treat them with as much respect, every one of them, as anybody else that I would. That's the way Jesus is. We need to be more like that, brothers and sisters. That's the way Jesus was, and that's why he's going to get this woman. And that's why he had such a tremendous effect, and that's why Christianity has spread like it has. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus did not let her impertinent criticism throw him off track. Living water I've got for you. Do you know who this is? How was Jesus able to keep his cool and not get distracted or disturbed by how she behaved and how she responded? I believe it was because he remained focused on her welfare and not on her words. He wasn't focused on his own pride or his own ego. He was focused on her. I've got to lead this woman to the Father. I've got to bring her to God. He wasn't concerned about what, what type of foolish words she might say. He lost himself just about where we so many times have lost our cool. Well, she didn't have a clue about this living water, but now with his patient persistence, he had her curious. And her curiosity next led her to challenge his ability and his identity. We'll get to that in just a minute. Let me quote from uh, Bruce Milne. Here, he, he uh, in his commentary, gives us another um, thing for us to remember when it comes to evangelism. He's emphasizing Jesus' compassion and sensitivity. I'm quoting, Through the entire conversation, Jesus deals with her as a person in her own right, with her, uh, with her own unique history and special longings. She emerges in the account as a character with personal dignity, because Jesus treats her as such. Simply put, Jesus loved her. Although we don't read the words I love you in the text, she could see it and was prepared to breach age-old conventions to reach her. Our failures in evangelism are so often failures in love. Nothing is so guaranteed to draw others to share our living water than an awareness that we genuinely care about them. People want to know that we care before they care about what we know. Remember that. Down to verse 11 and 12. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank it from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? The Samaritans were just like the Jews. They're always talking about their, their heritage. You greater than Jacob? They had that same common heritage. Are you greater than Moses? Yes. Greater than Elijah? Yes. David? Yes. That's what she was asking, really. Who do you think you are? And now Jesus has turned the conversation from the carnal to the spiritual, but she's still struggling to catch on, to connect all the dots. What is he saying? What does he mean? Verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now Jesus has moved from instructing the Samaritan woman to really teaching all of us. He's talking to every last person here today. This is very similar to his teaching in John 6, verse 35, when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Blessed are they, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. He's talking to us. We're thirsting for the right thing. If we have the right kind of hunger, we will be satisfied. He's also saying that nothing worldly, nothing carnal, nothing physical <clears throat> can satisfy us belong, be, besides just in the short run. Nothing besides genuinely serving God can bring genuine peace, joy, and contentment. As Jesus puts it in John 15, only if we abide in Christ and he in us can we maintain the joy of salvation. Ezekiel back in the Old Testament had hinted at what Jesus is talking about right here. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. She's tired of making this trip. Give me this. I don't know what you're talking about. Where is this water? What do you mean? Give it to me. I'm ready. She was just like the crowd in John 6 who said, Evermore, give us this bread. She doesn't fully understand what Jesus is talking about, but she does acknowledge at least that maybe this man does have the power to provide this miraculous water he's talking about. Now, Jesus goes from changing it to a spiritual conversation to changing it to her. He's targeting her. He's targeting the woman and her situation. Verse 16 through 19, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now it's possible that this woman may have been widowed five times, that all five of her husbands had died, but that's not very likely, is it? Even given the benefit of the doubt, on her five marriages, 
There is still no justifying her living with the man that she's now with. And Jesus knows it. And she knows it. He wants her to take a good look in the mirror. To see herself for who she is. And that she too needs a savior. Oh, she can boast about being a descendant of Jacob. But she's a sinner. And she's lost. And she needs somebody. And he is that somebody. But now she has a Bible question. And maybe this is... Maybe it's because she's a little bit overwhelmed with how all of a sudden this has gone from a talk about getting a drink of water to, to where she's on the spot. Maybe she's wanting to kind of deflect the discussion, but she has a worship question for the one that she's now acknowledged as a prophet. Let's look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. What's neat about this is now we know that where she's standing, they're 100 feet away from Mount Gerizim. She's pointing at that mountain. That's so interesting to me. She says, verse 20, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She kind of wants to have a religious debate going here. Oh, Jesus is going to disarm the woman. He's treated her with respect as a woman, as a Samaritan, as a sinner, but now it's time for her to drop her prejudice against the Jews and against the truth and listen objectively. And so he sets the record straight in verse 21 and 22 and gives her a preview to the kingdom. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation of the Jew is of the Jews. Let me just settle this controversy once and for all. You Samaritans have been wrong all these years. And where you're worshiping is wrong. It's no good. God doesn't accept it. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy. That's rather direct. And sometimes people don't like to hear that their worship is not found in the Bible. That Jesus does not defend, Jesus does not support, and God will not accept their worship. But sometimes when we love someone, we've got to let them know. When we've established, as Jesus has done, a relationship, when we've uh, demonstrated a genuine concern for them, and we've talked respectfully to them. Sometimes we have to tell them. The way you're worshiping, it's not found in the Bible. It's not there. And if you don't change, you're going to be in trouble because God doesn't accept that worship. Verse 23. And now, now he's really honing in. And he's going to come on real strong on this topic of worship. Yes, it does matter. It does matter. It did matter back then where you worship. But the hour is coming. And now is, talking about us, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. People don't think that any such thing as this exists. True worship. True worship. You mean that there is a kind of worship that is not true? That's exactly what Jesus is telling her. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling us today. There is true worship and every other kind of worship is false worship. Doesn't matter how brilliant the man was who came up with it. Doesn't matter how, well, this is awful convenience. Doesn't matter how sanitary it may be. If it's not found in the Bible, it's not true worship. True worshipers worship in truth, Jesus had already told in effect that the, Jew, the Jews were the true worshipers. The Samaritans were the false worshipers. 
Didn't matter how sincere they were in what they were doing. Of course, that's the prevalent way it is today, the philosophy in Christianity. All worship is acceptable, but Jesus makes it clear that that's not it. Listen, if we can't find our practice in the New Testament, we're kidding ourselves if we think that God accepts our worship. Can you imagine this Samaritan woman, her mother and her father, her grandmother and her grandfather, all the way back, generation after generation, they've been worshiping this way. And he's just done to her what he did to Nicodemus in the previous chapter. Said, you're going to have to set all that aside. You're going to have to do my will. You're going to have to worship just like I tell you. Just like in the right place. Now, today is not the right place. Today, um, the Lord is not concerned about the longitude and the latitude of our location where we worship. We don't have to worship in a particular city like they did back there in Jerusalem as opposed to Mount Gerizim. But there are particulars that God makes clear. When he talks about true worship, there are some specifics. In the next verse, what does he say? In verse 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him. That's not a condition, that's not a suggestion, that is an absolute. Must worship him in spirit and in truth. New Testament worship involves the teaching and the meditation upon the apostles' doctrine, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, praying to God through his son, Jesus Christ. It involves the observance of the Lord's Supper, the contribution for the spread of the gospel and the care of needy saints. We, if we had time, we'd talk more about the specifics on each of these. And as we noticed earlier in the meeting, there is a pattern. There is a pattern, and we are to abide in that pattern. We're not to add to or take away from it. Now, some people don't. They look at their little thing in which they can't find it in the Bible. It ain't there. But they, well, you know, that's not that big of a deal. We just do this little thing here, and that's the, we, everything else we pretty much keep. Listen, you start making one change, you have lost every last right to complain about all the things that have been uh, the flood of innovations that have come into religion. You've lost your right. Look what happens when you abandon, abandon the pattern. This is what happens. Listen to all the things. This is just a, a, a short list of some of the things that have come along since the New Testament was established. Auricular confession, the baptism of images, the baptizing of bells, the baptizing of infants, baptism for the dead, the burning of incense, the canonization of saints, celibacy of the clergy, communion under one kind, elevation of the host, extreme unction, invocation of the saints, the lighting of blessed lamps and candles, Lenten fasts and ceremonies, orders of monks and nuns, societies of Jesus, purgatory, prayers for those in purgatory, paschal candles, priestly robes and vestments, holy paraphernalia, penance, redemption of penances, pouring for baptism, sprinkling for baptism, the rosary, the separation of the clergy and the laity, the doctrine of transubstantiation, consubstantiation, individual cups, the sprinkling of holy water, the stored up merit of dead saints, the use of instrumental music, women preachers, and on and on the list goes. Once you start, don't you ever complain about anything else that anybody else is adding. But the best thing is never to start. Just stick with what the Bible has. Just do it the way Jesus set it down. And if you've gotten on the wrong road and you've taken up one of these practices that Jesus didn't set up, you need to let it go. That's as we're going to show in just a minute. That's, that may be your water pot. Well, let's read on. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, 
who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 27, at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. She left her water pot. When she, headed, when she was headed to the well, the most important thing in the world to her was her water pot. Funny how it is. Sometimes we get so focused in on our own little water pots that we forget what really matters. We get so caught up in the world and worldly things. We need to leave our water pot. What are some of the water pots that we have? What are some of the water pots that perhaps you have. There's the water pot of self-will, the water pot of self-pity. There's the water pot of family over faithfulness. There's the water pot of a carnal mind. There's the water pot of fear, the water pot of pride. I don't know what your water pot is today, but if you're not living right, you need to think about what is it? What is the water pot that I need to leave behind so I know without any doubt that I'm pleasing the Lord? And how I'm living and how I'm worshiping. Verse 31 through 38. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Look at all the good that's done from this one private Bible study, so to speak, that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman who's lived an immoral life. He's turned her life around and he's turned the city around. And they're going to be ready. Oh, yes, they will be ready in Acts chapter 8 when Philip comes to town. We've talked about a lot today. We've talked about how Jesus valued good works we talked about how the key was he initiated this conversation. He elevated the woman and he taught that there is such a thing as true worship, which automatically teaches us there's a thing, such a thing as false worship. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. 
Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.